Welcome back to another episode of Naturally Healing Autism. This is Karen Thomas. I'm your host, and we have yet another special guest with us today. And as many of you know who've been following for a while, uh, this episode is very much for parents of children on the autism spectrum. And what I like to offer are various uh, educational resources, and I interview experts, and I have another one with us today, uh, to give you more knowledge and more information about how you can get your children better and, um, and how to do it naturally. And, and some of you know that that was my story. My son was diagnosed on the autism spectrum, and I had to research, do all the research myself, as many of you have found out and what you're doing. So this is a way to offer you uh, those kinds of resources. And my son today has recovered. So I like to share as much information as I can with other parents because I know these kids can get better, and I wanna help you to get your children better as well. Any um, information that we talk about in this podcast show will, um, any links I will put on the bottom of the page at naturallyhealingautism.com uh, on, that, on that page where you're going to find this uh, podcast so that you'll be able to find those links and go to them easily without having to try and write down every single thing that we talk about as we are discussing things today. So uh, today our special is at uh, guest is Dr. Zach Bush. And Dr. Bush is a triple board certified physician with expertise in internal medicine, endocrinology, and, meta and metabolism, and hospice care. But the main reason why he's here today with us and what's going to help us is that in 2012, he discovered a basically a cellular communication network and how the bacterial microbiome in the gut is actually communicating and how it's affected. And we're going to talk about some of those things in our environment that affect it and then offer you natural solutions so you know what you can do about it. Many of you know that uh, things like leaky gut are a huge, huge issue for children on the autism spectrum, and the gut directly affects the brain. The, the gut's actually called the second brain. So there's so many things that Dr. Bush has to share with us that are really, really valuable uh, for you to know about for the health and behaviors of your children and um, for those improvements. So um, welcome, Dr. Bush. Thank you so much, Karen, for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. Wonderful. So um, we can get right into it. I, I want to, you know, discuss uh, leaky gut and uh, the things that you have found. So I probably should just kind of let you loose. I know that you're a, a world of information. I, I heard you speak at the Autism One conference and I thought, oh, I definitely need to have, have you as a guest on the show because you have so much to share. So uh, that whole aspect about the microbiome and that cellular, cellular communication, can you give us some background on that? Absolutely. Um, one of the deficits that we've had in the medical field is even a definition of what gut health looks like. And uh, there's a vague kind of concept in most physicians' minds and a vague concept in the consumer mind now that probiotics are good and maybe that's part of gut health and maybe digestive enzymes are a second tool that we can reach for. But in reality, these are, not, these are two very small little tools to have in a toolbox that would have to look vastly more complex in order to actually recreate what we would actually consider uh, our current understanding of what intestinal or gut health would look like. In a typical probiotic, for example, you would find three or five species of bacteria, and these are at very high copies. And so you might you see on the front of the bottle it says 35 billion copies or 50 billion you know, lactobacilli or you know, these huge numbers. Those are 
35 billion copies of the same bacteria over and over again. They're not diversity. And what we're increasingly understanding as a scientific community is that gut health is first defined by the ecosystem that lives there. There's a very good correlation in our macro environment. If you think about the jungles of Costa Rica or the jungles down in the Amazon, these support you know, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, many are thinking millions of species of insects and bugs and fungi and bacteria and you know, the birds and the monkeys and you got all this complexity of life that's a healthy ecosystem. Your gut should rival that. Your gut should have some 30,000 species that are thriving and communicating and interacting all the time. What we've struggled to understand is the relationship of that ecosystem to the actual human body and why is there such a close link between these two. Uh, the discoveries that started coming out in the late 2000s, so kind of 2006 to 2010, we started discovering that there was a huge correlation between the types of bacteria that are in the human intestine and the types of disorders that were happening in the human body. That was a correlation that we didn't really understand the, the mechanism by which those two would affect one another at that time. But over the last decade, we've really come to realize that there's multiple ways in which this happens. Our group has really teased out here in Virginia over the last four years, the big story about how the microbiome and their communication between these species impacts these barrier systems. The uh, permeability across a membrane is a huge piece of health. And so you mentioned the leak uh, across a gut membrane. If a gut membrane starts to lose its capacity to separate the outside world from the inside world, it immediately translates into an overwhelm of the immune system. A good 60 to 80% of your immune system lies right behind this cellophane layer of gut membrane. It's one cell layer thick is your gut membrane. That's half the width of a human hair. So imagine the human hair cut in half and then you have a piece of cellophane-like membrane that's spread over two tennis courts in size. That membrane, once that starts to become permeable or starts to lose its protective quality, the size of that injury to the human body really cannot be overemphasized. It's so much larger than any other potential injury that would come into our system because of its sheer magnitude and surface area. And so you have this two tennis court surface area that's backed up by the immune system. It's called the gastrointestinal associated lymphatic tissue. That's abbreviated GALT or G-A-L-T. The GALT composed of about 70% of your immune system makes over 80% of the antibodies that attack the outside world. They're kind of our Ferrari of immune system. They zip all over the body and attack things that shouldn't be there. Well, now imagine that immune system being vigilant and you've got you know, millions of guards on the, on the battlements getting ready to attack whatever comes through and suddenly the walls of the castle are gone and you just have a sieve and now everything from the outside world is coming in and the troops are almost immediately overwhelmed. This is really this description that's what starts at the gut, then suddenly turns into a whole body phenomenon for an autistic child, is that they have systemic overload going across gut systems, vascular systems, blood-brain barrier, neurologic system, and its unique immune system environment reacting, kidney tubules starting to leak and they can't pull the toxins out of the bloodstream as they should. And so you can imagine these children that were now uh, rearing in an environment where we've lost the ecosystem. 
the ecosystem and all these bacteria and fungi and viruses and parasites and all these things that are out in the world around us so vastly outnumber the humans. It's at the genetic level, you know, many thousands and thousands of times more genetic information coming from the microbiome than the human biome or the human genetics. And how genetics can be affected by a toxic overload. Precisely. And so your DNA should be repairing all the time. And it is repairing all the time. But you can outstrip the rate at which it can repair. You can do so much injury where you're starting to accumulate a, a structural problem to the actual genome or the DNA and accumulate these unrepaired DNA injuries. The far end of that spectrum, of course, is the cancer phenomenon where you see 20,000 to 25,000 genetic injuries in a typical cancer cell. And so to accumulate 20,000 injuries to the human genome without being able to repair them is a pretty profound state of dysfunction. But you back all the way up to the other side of the spectrum, we're starting to see kids who in the first you know, 18 months, two years of life are suddenly so overwhelmed that they can't keep up and they're starting to accumulate damage that we would have previously associated with a 90-year-old or a 105-year-old person. We're seeing that rate of, of injury and aging happening in their, their systems at this super young age. And so we can start to define gut health by these two phenomena. One is, does the ecosystem exist to support life outside of the human body, in the gut lining, under your eyelids, in your ears, in your nasal cavities, in your sinuses? If that ecosystem is thriving and healthy, it's going to be producing all of the nutrients you need. It's going to be pr producing a bunch of genomic switches, these things called microRNA that are going in and on off switching your genes. And so this huge ecosystem is like your front line of reality. It's really defining life outside the human body and therefore directly influencing the internal environment of the human body. And so the microbiome, number one, and then number two, of course, is these gut membranes, vascular membranes, and the blood-brain barrier. Maybe add in the kidney tubules on the backside. So these big, big membranes are there to be cohesive, intelligent barrier systems or gatekeepers to let in what needs to come in, get out what needs to get out, but keep all the other good stuff you know, at bay. And so how does an autistic child go from birth with hitting normal milestones, normal development, few words, starting to walk, cruise around on the furniture, and then suddenly, total shutdown, can't make eye contact, mood lability all over the place, inconsolable, can't focus, can't make eye contact. What happened in those few weeks between seemingly normal and abnormal? And all that happened is we got this huge gateway effect where suddenly the whole system was in overwhelm and everything from outside world got introduced. The whole system tried to rev up to respond to this, this vast invasion and it was you know too much for the inflammatory system to handle. And so the kid starts to accumulate a chronic inflammatory state. It might be good here for us to just uh, briefly touch on some of the things that can cause this overload. I know that some things are transferred in utero from the mother, uh, including heavy metal toxins and, and any pollution and things that she's exposed to as well uh, during the pregnancy. But then after pregnancy, um, well, and, and, and some, of the, some of the pollutions, I, we really should touch touch on uh, glyphosate, uh, which is a, a big issue today, um, which is a toxic chemical that a lot of people are using in their yards, but it's also something that is used in, um, in, in put on our food crops. So mothers are ingesting that, it gets into the baby. The baby can only take so much and then it's born 
And then um, breast milk carries certain things, but then it's also, you know, if we get into, I mean, there are other, other aspects, vaccinations and things. So we probably should ha have you kind of go into those aspects just a little bit so parents are aware of what kinds of things can affect their child so they might be able to help prevent some of that exposure. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we've spent a lot of science looking at the specific types of toxins that end up in an autistic versus non-autistic child. And what is increasingly obvious is that you can take siblings of autistic children who had the same mother, who would have, you know, mom had the same toxic exposure in her life, same mercury levels, same fillings, same et cetera, et cetera. And yet the non-autistic child doesn't have any of those same levels of toxicity. Mm -hmm. And so those sibling match studies, I think, are the most interesting to alert us that, okay, the toxins or the heavy metals, et cetera, aren't, aren't culprit number one. They're almost more of a symptom of some other underlying vulnerability that the autistic child had that their matched siblings don't have. And that, I think, comes down to these two pieces that we just mentioned. Number one is the vulnerability that happens when you get an injury to the microbiome is huge. And so these would, some warnings here would be if mom got exposure to antibiotics uh, during the pregnancy or more perhaps dangerous is right during the, the birth. So uh, this usually happens in a prolonged uh, labor where there's maybe ruptured membranes for more than 24 hours and, uh, or in some hospitals more than eight hours, and they'll trigger an IV antibiotic therapy that's killing out microbiome just as the child is coming into the world kid is getting laced with antibiotics before it ever has the chance to pick up a healthy microbiome from mom mm -hmm. or what else. And so IV antibiotic exposure or oral antibiotic exposure during or during, um, during pregnancy or during labor. Other warnings for mom is if she's started to have a recurring upper respiratory infections in the years previous to that pregnancy, uh, lots of colds, flu kind of stuff, seasonal allergies, just general immune overload happening in the upper respiratory system. That's a red flag that mom's probably vulnerable and her babies born in that environment are going to be deficient in microbiome, deficient in this kind of natural first defense system of the, of the bacteria, fungi, et cetera. And so vulnerability, I think, is an important piece for us as physicians and consumers to be aware of. What is my personal history going into this pregnancy? And then what is my pregnancy history going into that labor? And then, of course, from labor forward, as that baby comes into the world, what is its exposure to antibiotics? And so if the child has you know, a perinatal pneumonia and gets hit with an antibiotic in the first few days of life or develops, you know, uh, isn't able to nurse well and so doesn't get the skin exposure that she's supposed to have over those first six to nine months, uh, lacking biome there, the kid is more prone to getting ear infections, getting upper respiratory infections. They start getting hit with antibiotics at age one or two and we're annihilating directly their microbiome by the pharmaceutical method. But you mentioned a chemical, which is this Roundup herbicide, which is actually an antibiotic. And in this way, we're all being exposed to an antibiotic every day, no matter what. As American consumers, we're breathing it, we're, it's raining on us in our rainfall, it's in every bite of food we eat. You know, it's just unbelievably difficult to get away from this ubiquitous chemical that we've been using for the last 30 years. That chemical is called glyphosate, and it is the active ingredient in Roundup, which was the first kind of uh, product coming out of Monsanto, and they patented that compound, put it into commercial use, and they kept repatenting it with different things. Finally, in 2007, it ran out of patent options, and it went generic, and now it's made by all of the five big chemical companies in the U.S., and the vast 
majority of the global marketplace is actually fueled by chemical companies out of China. And so we're making massive amounts of glyphosate. We're currently at 2 billion kilograms per year in, in soils worldwide. There's no other toxin on earth that can compete with that level of uh, you know, synthetic chemical. Terrifyingly, that chemical is actually water soluble. Most toxins in nature are fat soluble and can be sequestered away in your body by fat cells or sequestered away in uh, the environment by mycelium of mushrooms and other things. But a water soluble toxin is going to be able to stay in the bloodstream, stay inside the cytoplasm of a cell to cause toxicity there. It's going to be able to cross membranes um, through the water channels and everything else. And so we're going to have this kind of total saturation of the system with this water soluble chemical. It first functions in the antibiotic to wipe out that vulnerability or create that vulnerability by wiping out the microbiome. But then it has a second injury right at the other element of what we would call gut health by damaging the Velcro system of that gut lining. And so we've introduced into our food chain over the last 25 years in great density a chemical that really wipes out the two aspects of what we would consider gut health, biodiversity and, and number of bacteria and that intelligent barrier system of the gut lining. And um, it probably is good for people to know, like, why are they using so much glyphosate in, uh, in our crops? And I know uh, a lot of people are using it in their yards and not really realizing the extent of the dangers of using the product Roundup, really, because of the glyphosate in it and um, how that is getting into our groundwater and how it's getting in then to our drinking water and then to our rivers. And I was just at the ocean and there was a seal that was, uh, was dying on the beach and the marine biology people were around it and saying that the fertilizers being washed down through the streams are causing um, the algae blooms if, uh, to, to get so um, toxic that the fish that the seals are eating are, are so toxic and domoic acid that it's a neurotoxin. So now the, the, the whole bio, the, the whole um, ecosystem in the ocean is being affected. Well, we're eating those fish as well, but you know, we, we really need to take a look at what we're doing in our own yards. Um, I, I recently interviewed Dr. Stephanie Seneff on glyphosate. This is another podcast that, that people can look at as well. But there's also something I really want people to know. It's important that there are natural things that you can use in your yard, like vinegar and a little bit of Dawn dishwashing soap does about the same job as that toxic chemical. And you, so you don't have to use that. There are natural alternatives. They'll just need to know about them. So, um, so yeah, it's a really important because I mean, this is creating, causing, affecting uh, children and autism, and also you're talking about this this gut biome that it's it's destroying it. So can you can you tell us a little bit more about how how it's affecting the system? And then we definitely want to get into the solutions about what we can do about it. Also, for sure, yeah. So the, um, the, those are the first two hits that you'll see with a wipeout of the microbiome with the uh, chemical, and then the second is this permeability effect that's not just affecting the gut lining, but every blood vessel and the blood-brain barrier start to leak. And what we see in this situation with chemical exposures to the, the microbiology and to the uh, membrane systems is that it's not usually gut symptoms that are the very first to show up. It's more likely to be neurologic symptoms that are kind of the most nagging and daily experiences of kind of undermining your quality of life. And can and you give a few of those examples for parents, like what you might want to look for? Precisely. And first and foremost, it's easiest to think of us and yourself as a parent because the symptoms that you're, you're experiencing day to day 
are really the, the mild version of autism. I think we're all walking around with mild sensory processing by all of this because we're all leaking now. And so it's not just our autistic population. They're kind of the canary in the coal mine saying, we have a massive problem. And I think that's because of the courage of these autistic children and you families that are supporting them, it's, they're gonna be the, the flag that actually gets the ship to turn around, I believe. But all of us are symptomatic in, in at least mild forms. And so the neurologic symptoms that we typically see as we start to get an increased permeability of the membranes is going to be around sleep disorder early on where you can't stay asleep. It's fractured sleep, poor sleep patterning, um, difficulty falling asleep would be in the next uh, piece of the puzzle there. Poor sex drive, poor libido, a huge decrease in your regulation of appetite where you start to have kind of a stress response to your food you, where you, when stressed you start to depend on your food for mm -hmm. for a kind of drug-like effect and so we start carb craving or sugar craving we start going after you know the fat sweet sugar combinations um, all of this uh, to kind of as a medicinal there so poor sleep quality poor sex drive poor short-term memory processing you know multitasking challenges uh, the inability to focus start to get a little more snappy at your relationships, even outside of the stress of your home where you're snapping at fellow employees and other things like this, this isn't me. Why am I doing this? Well, your brain is on overload and everything is working so hard to do damage control that you start to lose those natural coping mechanisms that initially are kind of more neurologic, but then will become emotional and you'll have more emotional ability as time goes on. Major depression, of course, is now, absolutely epidemic in our country one in three adults now with prevalence of major depression so it's just a really devastating amount of chronic disease uh, neurologically in our population and then in the, in the child you know to kind of get a sense of way before some adult is complaining about sleep deprivation or fatigue what we can see in our children is uh, the first symptom is is kind of colic uh, type behavior where the kids inconsolable at night bloating a lot of burping and gassiness kind of bowel symptoms going on, had difficulty latching, nursing is challenging, kid keeps unlatching and crying or seems uncomfortable during breastfeeding. Um, these are kind of some of the early signs of like, this kid is probably getting overwhelmed, probably leaking, even the healthy breast milk is causing irritation and all of this going on. So colic is kind of an early first warning. Then of course, the sensory processing stuff starts to become a little more obvious around 18 months to two years as the kid's neurologic development is hitting the state where they're able to do more complex tasks, do multi-step uh, processes and stuff like that. And that's where you start to get a lot higher likelihood of being able to diagnose an autistic uh, brain or gut system there. And so that early sensory processing deficits where the kid is taking in information seems highly intelligent, but is having a hard time retaining that or putting that into application in their level life. So sensory processing and then as we move through the life cycle, we start to see anxiety really emerge kind of in the late uh, single digits, so eight to 10 years old, especially in girls. Girls at that age are going through early puberty, and we see a lot of mm -hmm. acute anxiety. And this can show up as what we call agoraphobia, where the kid is suddenly afraid to go outside the home, resisting at the bus stop, holding on to mom's leg suddenly. It's just like, this isn't my daughter's personality. This is kind of another symptom. Okay, kids in overwhelm starting to exceed their their natural daily capacity for responding to the overwhelm that they're faced with each day. Um, so after anxiety disorders, the brain continues to stress, we start to see the major depressive disorders coming in. 
And so by mid-teens, late teens, our kids are now, again, the epidemic with rates of major depression and suicidal and homicidal behaviors that we just didn't see 50 years ago. And so it's an incredible creep of this kind of inflammatory stress, oxidation, rusting of the neurologic system that's happening by mid-teens. By the time that we're in late teens and early 20s, it's where we're seeing infertility really becoming extremely prevalent. In a lot of uh, populations in the U.S. now, we're seeing one in five or one in four young women with polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is basically a pre-diabetes state where the high insulin that they're starting to become insulin resistant, their insulin levels go up, the insulin effect on the ovary starts to misfire these follicles that should become ovum and, and launch every month with each cycle and those ovum never develop and the follicles never release and you get the cyst in the ovary instead. And this is the most common cause of infertility in our population right now, which is this inflammatory, insulin-resistant, misfiring ovary of polycystic ovarian syndrome. So see 25 to 30% of our girls already affected is a devastating number. Yeah, we're seeing, I mean, all the way from whether it's in utero or just after birth, the effects of whether it's antibiotic, poor diet, pesticides, the foods um, that the, our foods are heavily sprayed, even though organic foods we have to be careful of because the, the water that's being used to, to, uh, to, to water those crops could be contaminated. And, you know, and so we have to have some line of defense. Um, I mean, all of these things you know, that are just building up through our lives and, and we see you know, around you, you can go to a schoolyard, you can go to the grocery store and you see, these, see, see what's going on. Um, and so just uh, in ways that, that it's creating the inflammation and uh, tearing holes in the gut lining, allowing undigested foods in there, we get acquired allergies, the immune system responses, and then all of this neurotoxicity that creates all the symptoms that you're mentioning. And so um, you had mentioned uh, that you know probiotics you felt were uh, maybe not as helpful as we all thought they were. Um, so it probably be a good idea to look at that as well because you, we do have to rebuild the, the microbiome in the gut with the proper ones. There's human strain probiotics. There's others, a lot of products out there that don't work. Um, you know, a lot of uh, just general grocery store ones, or they don't even have in them what they say they have in them, or the quality's poor, or they're not what our gut needs. And to rebuild that, and then after rebuilding as well as, um, and I know that you have a product that you have created called Restore that is helping to uh, to tighten up the areas of those, those cell junctions that you talked about how they become loose. So, so can you can you talk about that a little bit? All of those aspects as well, so that people know. Okay, because it does get a little scary. Start hearing, okay, yeah, my child has all of these symptoms. Now, what do I do? <laughs> yeah. I think that we're finding is that you know, Mother Earth has so many solutions, and here we are. Uh, certainly the most insane of species to ever set foot on this earth. Here we are pouring 2 billion kilograms of a toxin into her soils every year now. And so this behavior, it turns out, was already seemingly planned for by Mother Earth. And so what we discovered in 2012 was this communication network between the bacteria. And with that discovery, we suddenly were able to say, this is the link. This is the link between why microbiome shift can lead to dysfunction or thrive in the human body. And so the, the communication network is very exciting because anytime you find a cellular system that's, that's just doing communication, it means that you found something that's not going to force anything on any biology. And most of the supplements that are out there in the world, vitamin D, for example, vitamin C, 
know, these age-old therapies that have seen, you know, massive support from the whole industry, from NIH all the way through so many different aspects of uh, research, all of those do one thing, and they do it well. You know, you know, they'll stimulate a receptor, and that goes and triggers genomic change and all this. In a communication network, you don't have any receptor interactions. You're not making a neuron fire. You're not making an immune system do anything. You're just simply putting the wireless communication back into phase. And previous to this discovery of the microbiomes communication network, we had studied at, at great length, and in my field of endocrinology and metabolism, the metabolism word there is really referring to the behavior and function of the mitochondria. And it turns out these guys are a lot like bacteria, but they live inside of our cells. They're way tinier than the, the bacteria. And these mitochondria, like the bacteria, are responsible for digesting food into compounds that we can then use as fuel. The bacteria, it turns out, we've shown, are actually talking directly to these other entities, these mitochondria, which are also non-human, inside your cells. And so you have these two ecosystems. And those two ecosystems, the bacteria and the mitochondria, as they digest food, they make this wireless communication network. On the mitochondrial side, these are little compounds that are oxygen-based, and they're very ethereal. They last for maybe a millionth of a second in the body. And so they're very quickly neutralized and triggering these communications sets that will go off across cell environments. We call these redox molecules, reduction and oxidation, which just means positive and negative charged uh, little molecules that, that kind of can create it like a dominoes effect. You tip one little dominoes and then three meters away, a domino falls. And so the same phenomenon where you have these little tiny dominoes of positive and negative charged oxygen compounds that then can trigger across the, the cellular environment to send signals long distances. That redox system from the mitochondria is responsible for the intracellular kind of communication of repair. And so it's generating a lot of the, turning on the machinery for cell response to injury, managing a lot of the antioxidant response to inflammation, these kinds of things. In contrast, the bacteria don't have the luxury of living in this protected environment of the inside of the cell. And so when we discovered these in soil uh, science back in 2012, the amazing finding was that the bacteria have had to create a system of communication that's far more stable than these little oxygen molecules. So there's this large carbon backbone that's gonna be stable through all environments. It doesn't matter what pH or what kind of osmolality or water charge is there, just these things are stable, stable molecules. But then on the end of the carbon rings, you have these oxygen-hydrogen binding groups that have the ability to do this redox biochemistry or this kind of exchange of electrons over space and time. And it's that stable communication network that we started working with in 2012 that's totally changed our understanding of human physiology. And it's really showing us that when you have enough bacteria, fungi, you know, probably parasites, viruses, all of these things communicating in real time, you get such a wealth of information in this wireless communication that you do really excellent kind of extracellular matrix and outside the cell protection and repair. And so we've really been excited to find that the biology of human life has almost nothing to do with the human cells. You are so far outnumbered by this microbiome and so far outnumbered by the mitochondria. So in the human body, for the sake of math, we'll say we have 100 trillion cells. It's probably less than that, maybe in the 70 trillion or maybe less. So 
somewhere in that 50 to 100 trillion human cells. We, we have to multiply that by 15 to get what, to our current estimates of the bacterial biome, which is somewhere around one and a half quadrillion bacteria. Well, that's a number none of us have heard of really, and none of us can really wrap our mind around, but it's 15 times trillion. And so you've got this massive number of uh, quadrillion of these, uh, I'm sorry, 15 times 100 quadrillion, uh, 15 times 100 trillion. That's very confusing at this point. But, uh, it's a you, lot. So you're outnumbered <laughs> by 15 to 1 by your microbiome. That doesn't even begin to take into consideration the fungi. And the fungi we know are probably 100,000 times more complicated than the bacteria. And so you get into these numbers that are so vastly beyond the human brain's capacity to really understand the complexity of this ecosystem. And yet we increasingly find that if it's not for the fungi and the bacteria and the parasites and the viruses and all these things influencing our environment, we fail to have health. And so it's a beautiful story that human health does not exist without plug-in or maintenance of their relationship to Mother Earth herself, this huge ecosystem around. So if your child is showing symptoms or if you are showing symptoms of overwhelm and you're starting to show that systemic inflammation and dysfunction, you just need to know one thing is that you are disconnected from Mother Nature and you need to reconnect. There's a lot of tools that we can talk about right now, but what I'd like to first focus on is, what about nature itself? How often is your child out in the, in the park? And unfortunately, the reality is that becomes very challenging when you have a heavily affected ASD child. It can be very difficult to have them out in public. It can be very difficult for the child to be out in public. And so that reality makes it very common that the kid's world shrinks very quickly. And so they have some early ASD symptoms or they are heavily affected from the get-go. And so their world shrinks and it can come down to a crib and an iPad or, you know, a little tiny environment that they're interacting with. And the ability to shift that microbiome is going to be very challenged. And so it, it takes some very creative thinking here oftentimes in my clinic when I'm working with a family of how can we realistically get this kid plugged back into nature more effectively? And oftentimes it's putting a, you know, a, a, a pack and play crib out in the yard or in the garden while you're weeding and you're weeding around the kid and it's, there's microbiome coming into the air every time you pull a weed and that kid is now starting to breathe this ecosystem back into its body and it's starting to interact on, the, on this microbiology cellular level with Mother Earth again. Just set the kid down in the grass for a few minutes and let them just pull on the grass, get the grass between their toes, get that soil touching their skin. You know, just give them that experience. Putting them in a front pack and going on a hike by a waterfall or up a mountainside. You know, these are all different ecosystems. And the more ecosystems in the macro environment that you can expose yourself to, the more the micro ecosystem of your body is going to start to recover. So if you see a child at risk, you know they were born by C-section or they came out with antibiotics in the vaginal canal, these are big red flags of like, all right, let's give this kid some extra attention those first couple weeks. Uh, let's get them sitting outside, breathing real air, get them out of the drywall box of the hospital or the drywall box of the house, and let's get them breathing real air, real microbiome, and get them reconnected as quickly as possible to a healthy ecosystem. Most of their bacteria should still be coming from mom. And so the breastfeeding is very, very important and just having the kid nurtured on the skin. And unfortunately, a lot of times what we see in the, with a child these days is mom's fully clothed and peeks one breast out and sticks the kid there. 
Well, in an ideal situation, mom would have shirt off, baby completely in touch with mom's skin there and starting to, now baby's skin is inheriting mom's flora quicker and getting a much bigger dose of reassurance from mom that the myome is coming and there's more and more bacteria. At the first couple days of birth and weeks, we should have predominantly vaginal flora as the dominant floral strains on the baby. That's gonna help protect it from a lot of the common pneumonias and things like that that happen in the first few days. But then as time goes on, because of breastfeeding, the child should be shifting to more skin flora uh, introduced into the microbiome of the gut and the nares and all of this and the head and neck. Uh, but again, if mom's all covered up and she's got blankets and everything else, and then baby's just got a little contact with a nipple, much less bacterial biome introduction there. So reconnect at every level with this ecosystem is a really important message, and you don't need a supplement to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think people often think about how much you really get from the soil uh, in your yard, and it, hopefully it's not doesn't have fertilizers and things on it. But to be able to, um, even as you're saying, if your child's outside and you're pulling weeds and they're just starting to inhale a little bit of the things around them, that that even the inhalation um, will will start to build some of that microbiome back. Yes, we really <coughs> talk about uh, the probiotics, and certainly there's a lot of variety in the probiotic world. In general, in a probiotic, if it's coming in a capsule, it's probably not going to be very effective. If you've got a dried out, desiccated bacterial uh, population that's stuck into a capsule and sits in a bottle on a shelf for a couple months, likelihood of viability of much of that biome is almost zero. And so I would not spend the money on most encapsulated, kind of dried out things. In general, if you're gonna to try to find a, a live system of microbiome, you're gonna to go to the refrigerated section. And in the refrigerator section of your health food store, you can find some always more expensive uh, probiotics that are, are alive and they're uh, cooled, but they're not dried out or frozen. And so that, um, that can be a place to go. But if you look right next to the probiotics, you've got oftentimes in that same health food store, wild fermented sauerkraut huge difference between those two environments. So in a wild fermented sauerkraut, the way they make that is they cover the batch with a towel or a terry cloth and the bacteria from the air keep filtering in over the course of weeks, introducing more and more biocomplexity to that saltwater brine that's gonna make the sauerkraut or the sour reuben or the, you know, the, the fermented beets, whatever you're doing with the kvass. These kinds of wild ferments are very complex in their eco-diversity and delivery. In contrast, that probiotic that may be high-dollar refrigerated probiotic is going to typically have three, sometimes two, sometimes five, sometimes 25, but it's going to have a narrow ecosystem uh, compared to that wild fermented food next door. We ate wild fermented food with every day of our lives until we invented refrigeration. Every people group on the planet has developed their own kind of favorite fermented foods. Uh, currently, the Koreans are probably best at this with their kimchi. And they always serve just a little bit of kimchi, a tablespoon or so right before each meal, especially dinner. And so those larger meals are introduced with kimchi. Kimchi just at a tablespoon gets this huge introduction of microbiome, as well as a lot of nutrients that it took weeks or months for those bacteria to create from the food that they were fermenting. And so you've got this huge bacterial intelligence and a little bit of fermented food. Uh, so kimchi is a favorite of mine. You get a lot of capsaicin in there and things like that. So if you're an adult, that's a good place to acquire a taste. It is an acquired taste for kimchi. Very challenging to get a kiddo with autism to eat kimchi because there's too much information going on there. 
And yeah. they have to be careful about the amounts, as you're saying, a, a, you know, a teaspoon, a tablespoon right before to start getting some, some uh, probiotic type into the gut before the rest of the food is, is given is really helpful. But too much can actually cause some behavioral and die-off symptoms. Of yep. the, so you have to be kind of gauge your, your, uh, <laughs> your dosages. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And that's actually pretty good advice for almost anything we put into the diet. Mm -hmm. uh, what we tend to do, especially as American consumers, we tend to overdo, especially when we you know, suddenly get on the bandwagon, I'm going to eat kale. And then you have these huge kale salads and you're bloated and you're wondering why you feel worse and you're constipated. And you're like, well, well this uh, clearly I, health food doesn't work for me. Well, your body's just not ready for that load of all of that insoluble fiber that kale carries. And you know, kale's a superfood. Parsley's a superfood. Cilantro, you know, you keep going through all these things. We're supposed to be exposed to a lot of these things in small amounts as herbs and as flavors within what we're eating, but not two pounds of kale. And so, especially now you think about that autistic gut, so many mothers say, well, they only tolerate macaroni and cheese. It's just a very, very narrow, you know, processed food that this kid tolerates. Well, that's because they have a very narrow ecosystem and the more processed the food, the less bacterial involvement you need processed foods are ultimately just going right in the bloodstream almost as they exist on your plate, which is horrible news. And so if you're bypassing the, the biome with, with processed foods, the kid might look like they're tolerating that, but in fact, they're starving of nutrients. Right. Or to give them nutrients, you've got to give that microbiome a chance to be like, oh my gosh, kale is here, or whoa, a turnip, what the heck is that? and start to extract the microbiome or the uh, micronutrients and the macronutrients and all these complexity of these foods out. So baby steps towards nutritional change is really key for certainly autistic gut, but I would say for all humans who are making transition, allow your body time to transition. Expect to feel a bit worse and a little more bloaty when you introduce a new food. Your body needs to get used to that. And that these children are very much addicted to the carbohydrates because uh, they also, uh, well, as the wheat has uh, gluten, this is the protein, and casein is the protein in dairy. And those two are really uh, harmful for children with autism, partially because those large undigested proteins are going through that leaky gut and getting into uh, the immune system is seeing them and all of that, but then they also create opiates in the system. So the child actually becomes addicted like a drug addict would be. They have to have that bread or those that pasta or they're just craving it and they, they go nuts when they don't get it. That's why I do just tell people very small transitions, move your way to that, but eventually not just away from wheat and gluten, but away from all of the processed carbohydrates because they're, they're all creating bad things in the system. But those opiates are definitely, a, so parents know there's like a kind of a drug addiction and a withdrawal symptom that you're going to get when you see this conversion in, in, in the diet. It's common. That's perfect. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that's spot on advice. Um, as we start to get beyond the probiotics, you mentioned, or before we leave the probiotics, you mentioned human strain probiotics versus non-human the vast majority on the market are non-human. Most of that grown from bovine intestine or cow intestine. And those bacteria really are not able to set up any sort of stable ecosystem in our gut. So they shift maybe the population a little bit as they move through the intestines, but within a day or two, they've gone. If I have a patient who's really found a probiotic that they swear this works so well, I've seen improvement. If that's the case, which is a rare thing, actually, most probiotics, people just take them because they believe that's the only tool in the toolbox of gut health. Um, but if you've found one that you feel like really does make a difference when you're on it, I simply just say, we'll just take it intermittently so that you're giving your gut the chance to diversify. 
So if you keep hammering your gut with 35 billion copies or 100 trillion copies of the same bacteria every day, day in and day out, you're going to get a monoculture no matter if it's from human or animal source. And we want biodiversity there. So start to just at least intermittently use the, the probiotics if you've got one in your regimen that you like. Uh, try to back down on the frequency maybe to a couple times a week or ultimately maybe to a couple times a month or whatever the minimum dose to get your therapeutic effect that you've witnessed. Uh, find that minimum dose and expect that minimum amount to change over time. The healthier it gets, the less you'll need over time of these exogenous sources of single bacterial strains. Um, so go to the fermented foods as kind of a, a new lifestyle for the home. Get everybody used to kind of being in the krauts and being in those fermented foods as kind of a half teaspoon to a tablespoon or before each meal and uh, keep that going on. Then uh, if we get out of the probiotic environment, there's the prebiotics. The prebiotics are simply uh, kind of these uh, precursor uh, fuels that the a number of the bacteria thrive on. So it's, it's like feeding the bacteria extra food. My concern there is that uh, if you use um, one of these strains, uh, inositol, or one of these prebiotic kind of compounds, they're only gonna feed a small segment of the biome. And so you're kind of selecting out uh, a portion of the biome that's not necessarily being naturally selected for. And so I'd much rather see diversification of the diet as we've been speaking to be your slow and steady shift on the microbiome than just a prebiotic that's feeding a segment uh, unnaturally. Um, so not a huge fan of the prebiotics just for that reason. Um, then you get to the postbiotics, and that's kind of was the 2012 discovery is the bacteria, when they digest something, they're making byproduct that is this communication network. And that's a much different scenario, of course, because you're not introducing bacteria anymore. When you just have the communication network uh, that's in the supplement restore, there, it's a sterile compound. There's no bacteria, there's no fungi, there's no viruses. It's a sterile compound. It just has those carbon redox potential molecules in there. And so you're introducing a communication network, which is going to add, A, the compost that the bacteria are looking for, which is these carbon ring molecules that are integrated with amino acids and minerals. And so you've kind of got this nice compost mix for the bacteria to thrive on. But it's also functioning as this yin-yang communication network, much like the cell phone that you carry in your pocket. Cellular communication there is dependent on this wireless network, this invisible signaling that's happening from cell phone towers across the country. And everybody has the experience on a near daily basis. If you're a little too far from the closest cell tower, suddenly that cell phone isn't functioning. But at that moment, all of the machinery in the cell phone is exactly how it was a few seconds earlier. There's no dysfunction within the phone of its reception or transmission capacity. All that happened is it lost the support of this wireless communication. Cell phones, just like the cell system of your body, are reliant on that invisible communication network and that's what the bacteria are making. And so as we put Restore back into the system, you're getting this wireless communication network going. It's not saying any words. It's waiting for a word to happen over here to pass it to this cell over here. And so all it's doing is joining the words or the, the calls for help that are normally being put out by a normal human body. And so the call and response suddenly starts happening again and it can be very, very quick. And so for that reason, if, you have a, if you're an adult and you're just feeling a little off and you've got a few mild symptoms of, um, of neurologic stress, you could start at a, a really significant usage of that and not expect any adversity. But if you're an autistic kiddo where all of the system is completely raw and almost in complete shutdown, you put the wireless communication network 
all the system is going to hear is help. <laughs> you know, the whole system is screaming, help. I'm toxic. I'm broken. I've got this going on. I've got leak over here. It's like suddenly the wireless communication goes and the whole system is like, ah, it's chaos. For that reason, we see super, super sensitive uh, states with these autistic children. Their systems are so screaming, please help. And when you put the wireless communication in there, they can only handle a little bit at a time. And so we start at very, very low doses in the, in the more severely affected group where you're just using just like one drop or two drops per week even. Okay. Water. I mean, just there's no rush on this thing. So as you put communication back into play, give the system time to hear a couple words, respond to that, make the communication a little louder get the signal built up and you'll hear a few more words splashing into the system, but give the child time and it'll be clear if it's actually giving them too much information. They'll, start to, they'll get more mood mobility. They'll go all of the autistic symptoms you're used to can just exacerbate a bit because the kid is getting too much too fast. So just back off again. It's not doing anything. It's not harming the cells. It's we've shown this unprecedented safety to these bacterial communication network but it can give too much information too fast. So just let your child be their own kind of barometer of how fast can they start to get their normal communication system back online at a rate they can handle. And, and we very slow titration. Yeah, absolutely. And we segued into this um, uh, fairly quickly. So I want to make sure that, that uh, people listening have caught on that you understand that, that Dr. Bush has created a, a product. It's called Restore and it's a liquid product. And um, this is this uh, this carbon-based redox, um, you know, with amino acids and these things. And and what he's created is be able to do these things and to rebuild. Can you give us a, a, a kind of in layman terms, terms like a, a kind of a general overall of what Restore can do for you? Yeah, and and the big picture, Restore doesn't do anything. What your body starts to do in response to the information, though, this is Restore is functioning basically like a liquid circuit board it's this wireless communication or this information highway. And when the body gets the information, we've shown a whole myriad of wonderful responses, excuse me. <coughs> Tend to talk myself into horses over the course of the day. So um, it's very exciting to have a supplement that's not trying to do anything to the child. It's not trying to do anything to a cell, just putting the communication back into play. And what we see is the very fastest response is actually at that gut membrane that we already talked about. Um, health begins at this healthy barrier system or gatekeeper membrane of the gut. And that's protecting the immune system from the outside world. And so it's not surprising that that's the first time or first place a liquid supplement is going to touch is the gut membrane in your mouth. Uh, there's a nasal spray into the sinuses. And so as it touches these membranes, the first response is, is going to be the, the body hearing from the, from the membrane or the tight junctions, which are the Velcro that hold all these cells together, help. We're weak because there's glyphosate in the mix and glyphosate has damaged the Velcro. And so the glyphosate or lots of other chemicals, Miralax is a drug that's used commonly for constipation in mm -hmm. children, ASD and other things. Miralax can cause that injury to the tight junctions and cause that leaky permeability to happen. And so uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen, these can do it. Alcohol is a classic one in adults. They can damage those tight junctions. Well, obviously, it hurt a kid too, but not too many one-and-a-half-year-olds on that toxin. Um, but anyway, a lot of these naturally occurring and man-made toxins can break that Velcro. 
And so not surprisingly, when the bacterial communication goes up and running, it's that extracellular matrix. It's the, the, the Velcro and these gap junctions and these big communication pieces between the cells that are the first to respond. And we can show this happening within minutes of introduction of the communication network. And so uh, within 16 minutes, uh, I think it's still on our website, but you can watch a time-lapse video of the first 16 minutes. It's crunched down to 16 seconds by time-lapse. Um, but this video shows the effects of Roundup or glyphosate on, a, on an intestinal membrane and the effects of this communication network being in place. And what you see is that the, the tight junctions are challenged in both populations, um, both with and without the restore. But when the communication network is in place, the injury begins and there's a rapid rebuilding of that system that's so fast that you actually get stronger, not weaker. And so the body's normal mechanisms of repair are what's being triggered by putting this communication network. So it's very cool to have uh, perhaps the, the only supplement on the market that fits the FDA's definition of a dietary supplement that it can't be used to, to diagnose, treat, or prevent a disease. Well, it doesn't do any of those things. All it does is put the communication network into, into play. It's the human body that's the healing machine. Mm -hmm. All it's lacking is the communication, and then it goes doing what it does best. So the first thing that we see happen is the tight junctions go up. Your membranes are now acting as an insulator rather than a sieve. And that's not just happening at the gut, but the blood-brain barrier, the blood vessels, the kidney tubules. We've shown it in so many different cell populations. As soon as the communication goes in, you get tight junction and gap junction, all these proteins that are now reigniting this communication network through the system. So uh, what is the link to this video, too? Is that restoreforlife.com? Okay, I want to make sure that I'll, I'll, we'll link to that on uh, the naturallyhealingautism.com page so that people can watch that video as well. And, um, and so um, two things I'm wondering about. One is, as these are restoring in the body, sometimes they can be subtle changes, sometimes they can be more drastic. So what, what kinds of symptoms and things would a parent uh, notice? And um, are you saying too that you have seen it, then it's also best utilized or well utilized for healing the gut as well for leaky gut syndrome? Yeah, I mean, again, it's the body kind of just, the body would have healed that anyways if it had enough information. So it's just putting the information stream back into anybody. So it doesn't matter if it's an ASD child or somebody that's suffering some other bowel condition. The, the health is waiting to happen. All the cells know how to repair. Mm -hmm. And that communication goes in and the system just starts coming back online. The gut lining is certainly the first response. And I think that's largely because that's where we deliver the compound. If we were to put it in, in an you know, intrathecal catheter into the brain, then we'd see the blood-brain re barrier respond first. But because we've got an oral and nasal pro product system, those membranes that it first hits will be the first response. The second response is in the immune system itself. That's kind of your next layer deep. And in the immune system, what we see happening is that the, uh, the mitochondria that we had mentioned earlier that are inside the cells when there's a damaged cell, those guys are supposed to pump out a lot of these reactive oxygen species, the redox molecules of mitochondria. But when we see damaged cells increasingly damaged, they start to lose the ability to make that signal of help. And the bacterial communication network of Restore, when it goes into the system, we're seeing a huge improvement in this help signal from damaged cells. And it actually takes the stress off or decreases the signals from cells that are healthy. And so you're taking the pressure off of the general body of this help signal and then boosting the signal in those cells that most need the help. And so it basically is a, a really fast discerner 
of where the major problems in the body. No problems, all right, let's just decrease the general noise. Major problem, let's amp up your volume. And so the, the bacteria are helping differentiate the help signals from the just general baseline information or, or static that's coming from the system. And so that second burst is this improvement of mitochondrial communication. Mm. The third is a fascinating thing that happens with the bacterial communication that we've proved out is that you really improve the protective enzymes that are in your gut lining. And so the gut starts producing enzymes. One of these categories is the DPP4 enzymes. These guys actually break down a lot of the toxins that we're talking about that, that are in our food chain. And they also break down the resultant proteins that are made by the toxins. So in the case of something like gluten that you mentioned, that induces a zonulin response from the gut lining. And zonulin is the little peptide that breaks the Velcro. Well, DPP4 chews up zonulin. So even if you get a gluten exposure or you get a glyphosate exposure, something that's going to damage that tight junction, that zonulin will be scooped up uh, before it can go and do its damage. And so the DPP4 enzyme upregulation that we see with Restore is a very exciting kind of recognition of this natural protection mechanism that we have in play. And that DPP4 is required in the body to break down gluten and casein. And most children on the autism spectrum are, are depleted or deficient completely in, that, uh, in, that, in the DPP4 enzyme. So that's really good news. Um, so you can, um, and then parents would see various changes in probably their child's um, appetite, interest in foods. I'm assuming um, their level of uh, calmness versus anxiety, behaviors, ability to focus, um, all of these types of things. That's exactly right. You know, and we see the whole gamut. You know, some kids will just start talking in three or four days, mm -hmm. drop like just these tiny amounts, and suddenly a child who hasn't been verbal in years suddenly says their first few words, and then you know, a month later, they're starting to sing songs. And by three months, they've got whole Disney movies memorized and they're singing them for their class. And I mean, we've seen these unbelievable stories of very fast uh, recovery because the restore's not recovering the child. The child's mechanisms of injury repair were all inherent in their body. Restore was just putting back this communication network mm -hmm. and helping sort out the signals for the no normal systems to come on board and to improve. We also see kids who have been on the product for many, many years and are just starting to show, you know, some improved function as far as concentration, less mood lability and all that. So it can take the whole gamut. And a lot of that, I believe, is how much diversity you're putting into the environment. If you start this communication network and start to support the system with the compost that the bacteria are looking for and then expose them to the waterfalls and the hikes and the garden and the weeding, then it's just, it can be very, very fast. But if you're hoping to get the whole story just out of a bottle, it's the beginning. It's the beginning of a new chapter for your child. It's the beginning of a new chapter for you if you're going to start on the supplement. But then it's, it's just the foundation. You need to go build the house. You need to build the ecosystem around the house. You need to build the, the rainforest. And so that process is one of re-engaging Mother Nature herself. Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually created a process to help parents lead them through that the recovery process natural and nat with natural resources and i'm very clear it is a process and it should be kind of done in an order you don't want to just throw your kid into a bunch of things all at once and uh shifting the diet is is a change but you got to kind of start there at the same time as supporting the different 
organs and various parts of the body that will help with detoxification um, because even just changing the diet, as we've talked about in, in this interview, will start that detoxification process. The body has to have some support there. So yes, this is a one step at a time type of thing and make sure that you're not doing too much at once. I, I'm curious with uh, a lot of people have used uh, L-glutamine in the past for healing the gut. So would this be something that would sort of take the place of, the, of any need for something like that? Yeah, so L-glutamine is a, a simple amino acid protein precursor. And that, that's like a one building block for a gut lining. And so in contrast to just adding one building block, you know, over and over again, and hoping that the body is smart enough to use that and build it, L-glutamine is a very small part of the extracellular matrix as a whole. And so you're basically, you can imagine 26 letters of the alphabet can make many millions of words. In the same way, 26 amino acids of the human body can, can make 200,000 proteins that will complete a human body. Taking one of those 200,000 proteins and expecting a, a coherent system to come into play is probably not, not realistic. However, we can see improvement over a six-month period on L-glutamine in a lot of individuals which means that adding fuel can to, or adding building blocks to that system can slowly over time, you know, replete some of the, the needed reservoirs. The communication network's instantaneous. There's no waiting for it. It takes minutes, not hours, minutes, not days, minutes, not months. So fast that the body's able to make the vast majority of their, their protein structures in the form of the amino acids. And then, you know, those soil carbon molecules are carrying the amino acids and all of that in them already. So you're going to see a big flush of, of communication plus building blocks as you start that. So in general, I would say if you've had success with L-glutamine, just start coming off of it slowly over a six-month period of time. No sense in removing it if it's working, but realize it was only a small piece of the puzzle and that as you get the systems up and running, it becomes more and more superfluous over time. How soon would you start using Restore um, or recommend it, uh, beginning it with a child on the autism spectrum or anyone really, but if you're really trying uh, to work with that, the, the biome for somebody on the spectrum um, and all different levels of the spectrum, would you start uh, shifting the diet and then add Restore or would you go ahead and add Restore right from the beginning? Much easier to start Restore at the beginning. The reason is because, as we talked about, you start adding new foods to this, the, the gut and you don't have the microbial life to deal with that. What's going to happen if you have leaky membranes is those new compounds, undigested because you're lacking biome, are going to start passing into the immune system and you will get more bloating, more mood lability, more anxiousness at night, poor sleep quality. All those are going to come if you're adding food to a system that's in high permeability state. In contrast, if you start just getting that communication network up and going, you start to get new tight junctions forming from the cell's natural defense mechanisms, all of that starts to go in play. Now you start diversifying the diet, far less adversity is going to happen. The kid's going to tolerate that shift much better. And you've got this complex compost that is ready to help grab the ecosystem out of the environment so they can more quickly figure out how to digest kale or beets or whatever you're throwing into the diet. Nice. And picky eating is such a big deal for parents on the autism spectrum. <laughs> and to get your child to shift to a new diet and healthier foods is very challenging. So it sounds like this could really be helpful in that as well, because if the body is supported and what it needs, it's not pretty much freaking out every time it sees something new and the child isn't, doesn't become so afraid of foods because they 
really see that as a reaction for their innate ability to know that that food doesn't make them feel good. Even It's a good food, a healthy food, but their biome can't handle it. And so when they eat it, they, they might not feel good right away and they just, they don't want to eat those foods. So this could help that transition period. Yes. Perfect. Yeah, that's exactly it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. This is fabulous. And also, um, did I hear a rumor? I think so. You have a book coming out this summer. Yes. It's coming out soon. I don't know. When okay. Um, those are always moving <laughs> targets, obviously, but I uh, do, do have a book coming out soon. Soon. And, uh, we'll have a big announcement as it comes out and we'll certainly hit uh, your site and many others. Okay. Sounds great. Uh, anything else you'd like to add before we, we wrap it up? I would just like to take my hat off to your entire audience. Uh, just a huge humbling experience to be at Autism One every year, to watch the courage and the dedication of all of you parents that are on your mission to find that healing solution for your child. You've all learned that it's a multifaceted solution for every family and frustratingly, it looks a little different for every single family. There's not a one size fits all solution out there. And I'm just so grateful, Karen, for your effort to uh, really speed the amount of communication out to the greater community. Uh, we have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of families that are unreached. And I'm just so glad everybody uh, on your podcast has reached you and reached the information. Uh, but a huge recognition of the uh, incredible frustration and uh, an apology, sincere apology at the deepest level for me, for my field of allopathic medicine. We have so poorly treated you all. We have so poorly communicated with the families of the autistic child we've so intensely and rudely and inappropriately accused or uh, inadvertently kind of blamed um, parents for for the situation their children are in and i just i have a real apology to deliver for our whole field that um that's out of our own insecurity it's out of our own lack of uh, knowledge and our poor education uh, it's our defensiveness that's that's manifesting that. Um, your doctors are very well-meaning people by and large, and we want to help, but we're so terrified when we don't have tools that work, and that leads to this defensive behavior. And unfortunately, we tend to lash out uh, when we're fearful and we're we feel out of uh, our out of our league. And frankly, so many of you are so well educated that we're intimidated often by your level of education because you know more about autism than 98% of the doctors you're going to walk in on. And so I just, you know, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for your journey. Uh, I appreciate that you're part of this rise in human consciousness that we all need to reach on this planet. We appreciate that you guys are part of this dedication to truth and pursuit of truth for your children and in your own lives. My last piece that I would like to pass on to you is that the best service that you can give your children is to take care of yourself. And it is such a common thing for us to see mothers, especially of autistic children, just drained to the absolute lowest state of function and your sponge is so dry. And you know, speak with your spouses, speak with your greater families about how to redirect your efforts to make you the first recipient of that effort for healing. Uh, the healthier you are, the more higher your vibration is, the higher your consciousness is and concentration is, the more quickly and easily and more facile you're going to have uh, to, ha to absorb the information your child needs. And so uh, I just really encourage each of you to take just a moment in every hour 
just to say, I'm doing everything I'm doing, I'm not doing for my child. Everything I'm doing, I'm doing for me because I want to be part of the solution for humanity. I want to be part of the solution for my child, but I'm doing it for me. And that subtle change of I'm doing for my children all day long to I'm doing this for me so that my life becomes more in flow, so that I have more time for myself as my child becomes healthier, so I have more freedom and independence and my child therefore will have more freedom and independence as this knowledge comes in. That subtle shift from my work all day to figure out what my child needs to I work all day to figure out what I need to, to help support those around me. That subtle shift in your, in your viewpoint can be a huge change to your soul that when you're just putting all of your arrows out and you're just all energy out towards the world around you and to your children, your soul knows you're being depleted. Your soul knows that there's no hope for recovery until you point those arrows back in on self and get yourself starting to feed from the love of the universe and just feel, filling back up and knowing that that is going to overflow into your child. So the more you process through you the love and, and the nurture of the universe, instead of just trying to shuttle that right to your child, the more rich the experience of life is going to become from, for your whole family. Very well put. I always try to encourage the, the parents that are in my program that as they're taking their children through the program and the process to go through it with their children because they usually have many of the same types of uh, issues that their children do uh, just at a different level. And I, I know how hard that these parents are working and the adrenals and the stress levels and everything else. And your child doesn't sleep for weeks. That means you're not sleeping. And so it's really, really important to definitely take care of yourself. And in, at some level know that you were one of the chosen. You were given one of these sensitive, gifted children that I believe is part of this evolution of the world changing for, for the better. And um, it's tough. It definitely is a tough journey sometimes. Um, and that is why exactly what Dr. Bush was saying. If, you know, you've got to take the time to uh, take care of yourself uh, along the way as well. And, and um, know that, that your child can get better and that you're doing your best. Uh, and that's again, why I created the program I have to be able to help people stop wasting their time and their money on things that aren't working and to be able to find a clear path so that you can move there sooner and do it safely you know because a lot of people are spending a lot of money and a lot of time on things that are just you know trying this and that not knowing how to do it and uh, a clear path helps a lot and uh, will help your stress level rather than feeling so frantic about, I want to help my child today, but I don't know what to do. So um, yes, I do everything that I can to help others because I saw my own son recover and change. And I know that they can. And I spent tens of thousands of dollars on things that didn't work to find what did. And I've spent 11 years now researching and I, there's no way I could not share what I found and what I have and why I continue to educate and, and, and interview experts such as Dr. Bush to, to further my education and your education about what is out there because even more new great things are being developed all the time that uh, can help this process even more because we know more now than, than we did yesterday. So, um, so, so yes, definitely take his advice and uh, take good care of yourselves. And uh, I, I feel the same way. These people are, are, are doing a tremendous job. Just know that you're, you're doing a great job. <laughs> That's it. You're amazing. All those little decisions you make and the efforts you put out are beautiful. And you are the most extraordinary of parents. And uh, having 
had two healthy children in my life, I can tell you there's not, no greater adventure and challenge than parenting, even when they're healthy. <laughs> and for all of us who have had healthy children and watch your journey, uh, the highest level of respect and gratitude for your diligence and your patience. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really, really, really appreciate you being here today. And uh, I will link to all of this information uh, at naturallyhealingautism.com on this podcast page. So uh, these links will be available for the parents as well. Um, when, uh, when, when you come to listen to this, you'll have those written down for you. So everybody take care and uh, we will see you next time. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.